Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Rolling Stone Executive Editor Nathan Brackett. Today we're going to talk about the late, great Merle Haggard. We're also going to talk about feedback on our 100 best drummers list in our reader mail segment. But first, we're going to talk about what we're listening to in the office. I'm here with Brittany Spanos, staff writer. Hey, Brittany. (laughs) And John Dolan, record reviews editor. How's it going? What's up? And Brittany, first we're going to talk about a couple new songs from Drake, who's got a new album coming soon. If word is correct on the street. Yeah. He finally confirmed a release month, so we know that Views from the Six <laughs> is coming sometime in April. Right. Um, just kind of depends when. But yeah, he has been kind of teasing this album for a really long time, and then last year released so much music, but none of it was related to an actual album. And right. so he Which de- you can do today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he debuted Summer 16 a couple months ago, and now he dropped two new songs called Pop Style and One Dance, right. which are two very, very different sides of who Drake is as an artist, which is really fun to see. Yeah, and One Dance is kind of cool because it's kind of, it's housey. It actually samples like a a UK house track from about 10 years ago. So it's a little bit of a different look for him. That's why I need a One Dance, got a Hennessy in my hand, one more time before I go. It's the singing Drake side, definitely in like the vein of Hotline Bling, and I mean, very good because of the success of Hotline Bling, right. sort of to continue on that path. But it has this rapper Wizkid and this Filipino singer Kyla, who's really incredible on it, and it's just this very breezy, summery track and really fun. And his vocal work has gotten so much better over the years, and he sounds really nice on there and really great. Yeah, of the two tracks, this is definitely my favorite, too. Yeah. And it's cool. It, it's got a, a dance sample that's the foundation of it. But with Drake, he's so into dancehall music and Jamaican music these mm-hmm. days, it sounds more like actually like a Jamaican club track to me. Yeah. You know, it definitely has like that kind of dancehall like thump. The guitar line is kind of a, a little bit of an Afrobeat guitar line or like kind right. of like mm-hmm. an Afropop guitar line. And let's, you're right. It's, it's nice to be a little happy Drake, lighthearted Drake. It's a little enjoyable, <laughs> like you know. It's like Drake. sort of the other one is the heavy kind of like, hey, you know, it's the pop life. Right. It's, the, you know, we're right. all kind of here. No one um, understands me. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's. Meek it, Mill's it, out to get me. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, the, the, the pop style, obviously, is the one that it sort of would be the more newsmaking track because mm-hmm. it's, it's Kanye West is on it and Jay-Z and. Actually, yeah. going under the name of the throne. The throne, yes, yeah, returning. Yes, right. right. Who are these men in the throne? <laughs> 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 Interesting. I've heard of them. I'm gonna watch them. They still had to get me because they never got me. They still had to get me, they don't get it. I cannot be gotten, that's a given. They like Pablo. Why Kanye stuff is more kind of like. Oh, you know, I did say this thing about Taylor Swift, and I, you know, I'm kind of over the top, and so there's that, and then the the Jay Z thing is one line. It's like he wanted to do the absolute minimum number of <laughs> syllables <laughs> to get his like. Maybe you it's know. just because when you're Jay Z, you only have to do one line. <laughs> just, this is what he's, I'm giving he's you. He's like, right what can now, I get? Right. I can do, is, am I, have I made it to get to like the union minimum or whatever? It's <laughs> like I, I made it. Good, okay, so you, we get I'm one out. more Give me my day rate. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Nope, I'm good. So, but you sneeze and you miss Jay Z. But then the, uh, the 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 in the Kanye verse is sort of a kind of continuous of some themes Kanye's been working with. And right. I mean, it's interesting. They're like, you know, they're the three biggest names and hip-hop mm-hmm. figures of the past 15 years, really. But is this the first time they've been on one song? Do you guys know? It's all yeah. together, yeah. I mean, yeah. I was kind of surprised. Like, 
I kind of thought, oh, I'm sure Kanye and Drake have done a bunch of things, but they really haven't. Mm-hmm. Like over the years, they've done kind of very little. There's one remix of Flashing Lights with Drake on it, and they've done rem- remixes and stuff. But like, yeah, and there he, were rumors of of, of beef wolves. that came out. Of, yeah, some some of which came out of the Rolling Stone uh, feature that Drake That's did right. a few years ago. That's right. Yeah. Um, and there was supposed to be a track recently. I think Wolves was supposed to possibly have Drake on it. But Drake that, in right, York. Yeah, right, that'd be something else. But <laughs> when, it didn't. That also didn't happen. When Kanye said that he had to fix Wolves, it did not include adding Drake to it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like right. maybe. Maybe version nine right. will come out and will be like in 2018. Right. It was on title for half an hour. <laughs> it's like, oh, nice to see a little modifying of Drake's kind of thing. And it's funny that the sort of lighter track, the track that wouldn't be the sort of uh, marquee track is the much more enjoyable track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. John, you brought to the table a song from a group named Bleached which I'm quite enjoying. Do you want to talk a little bit about them? Sure. They are a band fronted by two sisters. They're from Los Angeles, Jesse and Jennifer Clavin. Um, it's a great kind of garage rock record. They're not doing a ton to sort of like push the zeitgeist any, anywhere, but it's just a fun, enjoyable garage rock record. I guess the sort of combining maybe like Best Coast with the Go-Go's with a little bit of Joan Jett. They kind of sometimes imply like a stoner Go-Go's. There's one song that I know Brittany likes. It's called Sour Candy, where it starts off with kind of an L.A. moment. It starts off with the sound of a bong hit. And then you think, okay, there's bong hit songs, I get it. Then the next thing is the sound of a car starting. So it's like, kind of like the real L.A. kind of thing. Like, there are bong hit songs and there are car starting songs. But we've never really had a bong hit car starter before. But it's 2016. It's about time. The whole record is full of kind of real catchy songs about kind of like love is this numb experience and I date the wrong guys and I'm always wasted, but it's still kind of a good time. Maybe, maybe not. Um, there's one, the ones, the great song is Wednesday Night Melody. It's about just their vinyl and how much they love their record collections. And it's like, um, isn't it fun to feel just a little alive? It's just a little alive. We're not totally alive yet. We're still kind of zombified, but we're feeling a little bit alive. And it, the song sounds like uh, I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett if, if it was a kind of a breezy 60s California tune. This is the one that jumped out at me. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love this song. Yeah, it definitely had like the I love rock and roll beat. And then Sour Candy sort of sounded like um, the Shangri-Las. Yes. A little bit, like a little bit leader of the pack, especially with the car sound at the beginning, but like leader of the pack, but kind of put through like a Sex Pistols sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's a lot of history in it that's like kind of like unassumingly folded in there. It's mm-hmm. not like they're like, you know, showing their influence. It's just kind of like, it's kind of natural. It's a pretty yeah. en- enjoyably breezy album. Yeah, they definitely like wear their influences lightly. Yeah. For sure. Speaking of uh, influences, we're going to also listen to uh, a song from or a snippet of uh, the new album from uh, Charles Bradley, uh, which I know you're digging lately, uh, Brittany. He's at the, the young age of 67. He has his third <laughs> album. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about it? He's only it? been doing this for a little bit now. Right. He, um, Charles Bradley, I mean, he's just such a charming character in soul music. I mean, he was a James Brown impersonator under the name Black Velvet for a really long time, and then he just sort of had this, like, late-in-life sort of revival of his career. He was, I think he was discovered by the um, uh, head of Daptone Records, who mm-hmm. handle Sharon Jones, right? And yeah. The, da- the Dap Kings, another, you know, kind of great retro soul. Yeah, and the whole Daptone roster from the past few years has been so incredible to see these amazing artists who have had these long careers actually see this 
mainstream success. And Charles Bradley is one of them. And he just released a new album called Changes. And my favorite song off of it is Ain't It A Sin, which is the new single. If you ain't gonna do me right, I might just do you in. Ain't it a sin? The song is so catchy and really fun. The song is, yeah, killing. And I, I feel like his band has stepped it up a notch. Yeah. I mean, this, the band just sounds awesome, and it's definitely hugely retro, but it it still has a little bit of danger, which is always the challenge, I yeah. think, when you're trying to do something that sounds like maybe like 60s soul. Like, how do you make it sound not quaint? Well, they, he does funny things. Like, for instance, obviously the sort of big moment is the, the title track is a Black Sabbath cover um, of, a, of the piano ballad from, I think, Sabbath 4. It's a... Uh, changes, changes. Right, yeah. And he does it as kind of an Otis Redding, basically a Stax kind of ballad. And it's very moving and, and real sweet. The song was a soul ballad itself at, at the beginning, and he acknowledges that. So and it's it's that's a very nice moment. There's another track where about midway through, the, the horn section does an allusion to Summer Breeze by Seals and Crofts, which is pretty great. <laughs> so there's these cute little moments and allusions, and then it's totally true. It's like the he's kind of being redeemed by this context he's in because the band and especially the horns on this on these records he's done have been are, are great. It's not so much his massive talent, like he's not some lost Otis Redding. It's really the kind of heart and the enthusiasm he yeah. has for being there, mm-hmm. um, and and the way this sort of. Dap tones, Brooklyn kind of neo soul, retro soul revival has kind of embraced him, and there's a real just sense of like happiness and kind of community coming out through the music itself, and it's it's a very enjoyable record all the way through. For sure, and and he's shown with this one, which is the third album since his kind of rediscovery or yeah. discovery that yeah. like he's not a, a one off. You know, a, a one shot. No, you know, no, is, I mean, which yeah. has been the case sometimes with people mm-hmm. who kind of come out of nowhere. It's true. It's weird. It's, we, it's it's one thing to make. You know, remember when um, Shuggy Otis or whatever. It's like you right. know, you get the like the one record where it's like the cool producer finds you and they have to make that one record, and then it kind of peters out. But this is the third one. It's actually probably the it's better. He keeps getting better, and he's yeah. sixty seven. He started when he was sixty one. It's remarkable. He's just like always having a really great time on yeah. stage. And that yeah. comes across. Yeah. yeah, and he's a great performer. Mm-hmm. There was a documentary about his life, Soul of America, which I encourage people to check out. Definitely. Well, Brittany Spanos, John Dolan, thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you. It's a big job just getting by with nine kids and a wife. But I've been working. And we're back. That was Working Man's Blues by Merle Haggard, who died last week. I'm here with Rolling Stone managing editor Jason Fine and Patrick Doyle. Uh, two of the guys who covered Merle the most over the past 10 years. Patrick wrote the obituary that's on rollingstone.com and also did the last interview with Merle, which went up in January. And Jason wrote an amazing feature on uh, Merle uh, in 2009, which I would encourage everybody to read, even if Jason wasn't my boss. <laughs> it's really, it's just awesome. So uh, Jason, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right, and Patrick, thank, thank you. you. All right, um, all right. So Merle Haggard, like it's like a cliche. Merle Haggard is like this this Mount Rushmore figure in country, along with like Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson. How would you explain Merle Haggard in terms of like his relation to those other giants? How would you guys fit Merle Haggard into like the the country firmament? Patrick, do you want to take a stab at this? He was sort of an outsider. I mean, those guys, Willie. Chris, Johnny, they were in the Highwaymen, Waylon. And right. so uh, Good they were sort of a club together. And then they came a little bit after Merle. Merle was a little bit earlier. And, I, you know, coming from California, he just felt like 
his own person. Much right. I feel like he he definitely you know he definitely liked that to be that that outside you know he really he really for example <clears throat> he went to Nashville which is where all the country singers were supposed to go and live and record and he just hated it you know he bucked at any kind of convention but I think with Merle you know he he was never quite as well known as Johnny Cash or Willie Nelson and 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 that always kind of aided him a little bit but at the same time you know that was his own doing he he never made the moves that would make you he didn't show up the awards shows he didn't you know write the hit singles he was always trying to do something different or do something he was you know he was very suspicious of conventions um and i remember speaking to him shortly after johnny cash died and and johnny cash was a really close friend of his and right. he said you know i felt like when johnny cash died i moved up a notch you know he was very right. aware of that kind of order. Um, but at the same time, you know, he was an original. I mean, he was one of the guys who had the connection to the source of all of this music. You know, right. he knew Bob Wills and Lefty Frizzell in his lifetime. And and so he carried forth that strain of, of you know, American folk music, country music, as, with a direct connection to what came before. Right. So when he dies, that connection is broken. It right. doesn't exist anymore. Right. Uh, I mean, one amazing yeah. fact in your story, Jason, is about how he really was the real deal in a way that maybe some of those other guys at his level were were showmen on some level, maybe great showmen and great performers. I mean, Merle Haggard, he was in jail in San Quentin in 1959 when he first saw Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash was the guy who was performing for prisoners, but Merle Haggard was a prisoner. He was, yeah, he was a prisoner, and, and you know, and, and years later, when Merle was out and he got to know Johnny Cash, and, and Johnny Cash said to Merle Hag, you know, you're you're the guy people think I am. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the guy with right. the with the the prison past, and and you know, he'd lived pretty much as a criminal since he was a kid, and he was very embarrassed by that. Um, it wasn't something right. he was proud of. He he didn't want anyone to call him an outlaw. He was right. running away from that. Right. And Johnny Cash actually was the guy who encouraged Merle to talk about it, to own it. Right. And and that's really when he came into his own, when he began to own his own story. Right. And he started to do that with songs like, well, The Fugitive was for a movie, but it was it was also kind of his story. The Fugitive was like, yeah, it was for a, a TV show, but it was like a veiled version of his story. I'm on the run, the highway is my home. I raised a lot of cane back in my younger days. The world didn't really know that Merle had been in jail Branded and everything man like that, and all that, that stuff that was all later. Yep, right. Branded man. He really was, uh, I mean, he really was an Okie, maybe not from Muskogee, but he really, I mean, his parents, he came over from with the Dust Bowl, after the Dust Bowl. To, yeah, to he came California. over during the Dust Bowl, is, um, you know, from Oklahoma with his parents, and they settled in the San Joaquin Valley with all the other Okies that were settling there. But, you know, Merle makes a, makes a point that they, they didn't come because they were desperate. You know, they didn't come because they had to. Right. Um, their think, house had burned down, and, and, they, and they came for those reasons, but he makes a, a strong point of that, that, you know, his dad was a hardworking guy and always found work. And, um, yeah, he... he his dad seems to figure, you know, his dad died. How old was Merle when his dad died? He was 10. Nine or 10, right? Yeah. He was 10. And then Merle acted out, right? He became kind of a, a juvenile delinquent. 
Yeah, his old, he had a, a brother and a sister who were much older, who were moving out of the house. His mom, um, you know, was working to support him, and, and he was kind of on his own, um, you know, and he started, I mean, he hopped his first train at what, age age 11? Yeah, yeah, and by then he was playing guitar, and, and, and at 14 he went to a Lefty Frizzell concert, and he could do impressions even back then. If you go on YouTube, you can see him impersonating Johnny Cash on the Johnny Cash show, but... He did that of Lefty Frizzell, and Lefty Frizzell said, you have to get on stage yeah. um, and do that. And so... It's uh, funny. I mean, you can still... And he, he could impersonate anyone. He had that gift. He was... In, in, he, up until up until he died, he would do these amazing impersonations of yeah. anyone you asked him to. He, he did it of um, Dwight Yoakam, and uh, Dwight said that that was the, the highlight of his whole career when, when Merle called him out, and he did that. And uh, I talked to, to Dwight yesterday, and he was talking about... Uh, Mama's Hungry Eyes and, you know, how that, he was reading the first couple lines of that song, uh, you know, a canvas-covered cabin in a crowded labor camp, stand out in this memory I revived. It just, and he said that that made him want to write songs. Yeah. I mean, he was such a songwriter and also such a Californian, you know? I mean, it was all these songs just about California and this working-class California and this this kind of thing that, you know, a lot of people talk about, Brian Wilson as being the great California songwriter, which he is, but Merle is too, um, and really represents a, another part of the state in songs. And that between the two of them, you really get sort of what California is. It's this other California that people don't think about as much, but that inland, yeah, that Bakersfield. But the, the Bakersfield sound, Merle had an, a great quote that was, uh, Dwight asked him the difference between Nashville country and uh, Bakersfield country, and he said that the country music in Nashville came out of the churches, and the country music in California came out of the honky-tonks and bars. Oh, that's interesting. Um, which is and also the bluegrass, you know, Nashville yeah. sound is much more bluegrass-rooted, and, and the Bakersfield sound is real wiry and has that real, you know, that Telecaster guitar, wiry sound. And rock and roll. Yeah, real edgy, rockabilly. More like rock and roll more than people think. The Stones or even you know, Chuck Berry, he was a huge fan of that stuff. He, he did yeah. our 10 grit. T- songs I wish that I'd written, and he, Chuck Berry and the Stones were on there. Yeah, and jazz too. Yeah, huge jazz fan. His shows were sort of you got a taste of all of that stuff. Absolutely, and 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 also just in the style of the shows. You yeah. know, I mean, he guy was you know never had a set list, never knew what he was going to play, and guys in the band didn't even know when when it was going to be their turn to solo. He always keep people on their toes that way. I went to, to see him in in um, Nashville at the Ryman a couple years ago, and. He did two nights, and a Friday and a Saturday, and the first night was about 90 minutes long, and uh, it was a pretty standard Merle Haggard show, and then the second one was uh, two hours and 20 minutes, and he was <laughs> saying, and he would call out, let's do a Roger Williams song, um, you know, he did some standards, and you just, you never, he, he, he could do everything. Well, he was kind of like that in life, too, you know? I uh-huh. mean, he was very um, moody mm-hmm. and, you know, had definitely had some kind of depression running through him, and then he'd have these high moments and these low moments, and when he catches a good tailwind, you know, there's there's just nothing better than that. <laughs> you remember when we saw him play, We Patrick and I saw him play mm-hmm. six, eight months, no, what was that, a year ago? In Jersey. In Jersey. Oh, yes, that was that was like less than a year ago. Yeah. October, was it October or something? Yeah. And he, he brought out his, his fiddle, you know, and, and he had learned to play the fiddle in order to play these Bob Wills songs. Uh, you couldn't play him without the fiddle. He so was he, a huge Bob Wills fan. Huge right? Bob yeah. Wills fan. And, and, and actually, when Bob Wills died, Merle hired a lot of Bob Wills' band. And, um, and he learned to play the fiddle so he could get those, that two-fiddle sound on those songs. And, he, you know, he said that 
it took him about four months to learn to play well enough. And that four months, you know, he lost a lot of band members on, <laughs> on the tour bus. And so when he brought out the fiddle this night, he said, uh, he said, you know, this fiddle has cost me a lot of band members, you know, over, <laughs> over, over the years when I learned to play it. And he said, uh, a lot of girlfriends too. And, and then he started playing and he stopped and he said, you ever want to lose a woman? Pick up a fiddle. <laughs> he was full of that kind of stuff. He, he with the fiddle thing. You, I mentioned to him. I said, "Your fiddle oh, working in Tennessee." When it was later, great songs been faded. Love. Um, he did that live in, uh, in Texas with Willie about a year ago, and, and uh, it, it was, it's the best part of the show. He looks the happiest when he's playing the fiddle. But then I, um, I asked him about his. You know, he only does a couple songs. He said, "Well, my repertoire is pretty limited." <laughs> he only knew a couple songs on the fiddle, but he could right. really play Which them. Makes well. sense. <laughs> you know, a lot of people's first experience with him was a kind of the O'Keefe from Muskogee. That song became this. A lot of people saw this kind of right wing. You know flag-waving song. And then but then later in his life, you know, I mean, when when you met him, Jason, he was a, you know, vegetarian and, you know, more libertarian, you know. Was that a progression or is that just who he was? Was he misunderstood? Yeah. Well, I mean, Merle himself said, I mean, I think he said it to you, that there's about 1,700 different ways that you could, you know, understand that song. Mm-hmm. And he's always been unclear about what, what he meant. But um, in fact, I saw him play one time, and he came on stage, and he said, here's a song that, that I wrote when I was dumb as a rock, mm-hmm. right. you know? But then he said, but it's also a song that had to be written. So even, I think he himself is conflicted about it. But in your interview, Patrick, he talks about how he was standing up for, for soldiers who'd come back from Vietnam. Yeah. And, 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 and it was that, but he was wrong about, some, about putting down the hippies to do that. But he was still pretty firm on that, even... The last time we talked about it, he he uh, said, I was seeing these soldiers coming back from Vietnam or not coming back from Vietnam, and then I was seeing these kids who knew nothing about it burning their draft cards, and um, it was insulting, and, and he was very angry about that, and he wanted to give a voice. I mean, there's a lot of music. That, and he did that, go in on it a couple of times with, like, the fight inside of me, too, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, the funny thing about, I mean, the funny thing about that is that, so the Oki became his biggest song. Uh, ever and it was a, a huge single in whatever year it came out seventy or I think it was sixty nine sixty nine and it was in Easy Rider too right and he yeah. was he was upset about it at the time he he was uncomfortable that he was becoming known as the guy who was representing the the silent majority and all that kind of stuff so he he the he next was the single, Toby Keith of his day yeah right? exactly yeah, right the next single he wanted to release was a song Irma Jackson is that what it's called yeah. About about an interracial relationship. And the record label rejected that and instead put out The Fight Inside of Me, which sort of even was more jingoistic. And, right. But I think, like anything with Merle, he changes his mind a lot. He looks at things from different angles. He he He's always contrarian and, and doesn't like conventional wisdom, likes to take a stand. Um, tries, he, like you said in your story, he tries on different opinions each day to see what they, how they fit, which I thought was a great way to put it. Right. Well, how about we talk about the progression? Because he had almost a little bit like Johnny Cash. He he had uh, kind of a rough patch in the '90s, couple pretty poor selling albums, and then came back in 2000 with a pretty wonderful record. It was uh, if I could only fly. That's where you guys your your experience was with him. Can you talk about that kind of last chapter? That specific song, "If I Could Only Fly." We were watching that in, in Jason's office yesterday, and. It was one of the best Merle yeah. performances I've seen, and I, and I just thought of Frank Sinatra. And we started talking, and he could sing like that, but he could also write. And I don't think there's anybody better who could who could write like you know Bob Dylan, and then also sing. Yeah, like, you know. Yeah, an incredible. It was an inc- incredible interpreter of song as well yeah. as a songwriter, which is yeah. so rare. 
you know, he'd had a real rough period in the 90s. Um, and and you, you, there's records like on Curb Records. Um, <laughs> 1994 was one of them. Like he was, all, you know, it was almost like too exhausted to even write an album title, you know. <laughs> and 1996 was the that follow. That was the one after you know? that, yeah. <laughs> but there are some really great songs in there, but with really bad production. And you could tell he didn't, just didn't have... He'd gone bankrupt in 93. I mean, he was, you know, he was kind of at the end of his rope. He, he was almost 60 years old. He had a wife who was 25 years younger than him, two young kids, and he was bankrupt. And he didn't know what happened to it all. He lost everything. He had mm. to sell off most of his ranch. And, you know, I mean, he, he really could have pretty much just checked out at that point. But something happened around 99. He just kind of started to find a new life. A lot of it was probably competition. He saw Johnny Cash. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? He saw Johnny Cash with the American yeah. albums. And I think that inspired him. He signed up to Epitaph, which was, you know, a punk rock label. Right. And that record was a killer record. And the follow-up to that was that the follow-up was Roots, right? Oh, yeah. Roots Volume 1 and then yeah. 2. Which um, was all songs that he grew up with. Runaway Mama on that. Yeah. Some of his own songs acoustically. And, and then the, the, I guess the Bluegrass Sessions kind of ran into that, too. Yeah, I think his last fifteen years of albums are stand up with with anybody. You know, I mean, he 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 wrote songs better longer than anybody. And that was always his thing. You know, he was never gonna rest on his laurels. Um, you know, unlike a lot of performers, sort of in the latter part of their career, he didn't want to just go out there and sing the hits and do the things that were expected. He challenged himself all the time. You know, when I interviewed him, he said, I. He said, if I have one more ambition left, it's to write eight lines that can help turn this country around. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty, I mean, that's, that's, that's a lot of ambition in your 70s, but also a lot of pressure to put on yourself. Yes, and, but what a wonderful way to, to articulate. Like, that's something that I'm sure many performers are, you know, who have a good image of themselves feel like that's what they'd like to do. But and what a great way to put it. Too. Yeah. I mean. You know, um, and he really sort of honestly, you know, documented what he saw as, as you know, the country falling apart in his, in his mind. He's a very nostalgic what guy, happened? so what say. happened. But also, like, his own sort of personal, you know, aging and demise. Right. And those two things were very intertwined for him. He said, right. I, I feel like a preacher in the congregation and nobody's listening when he would talk about, <laughs> <laughs> about we the state listening. of the country, and which he was still yeah. talking about now. Can you talk about kind of what he was like when you first met him, Jason? Or, or like, what, what was he like kind of in the room? What, you know, was he welcoming? Was he difficult? And then you, you became friendly after your, your piece came out or over the years. Yeah, well, when I first met him, I wanted to do a story about him, and I went to California, and I, and I went to his show, which was great. This was like in maybe 2004 or something. And then he invited me on his bus after the show, and he was really high, <laughs> and he was sort of dismissive, and it was, it was a very awkward situation. And I came away thinking, I'm not really so sure I want to do this story. So I, I just kind of let it sit. And then about a year later, he was playing it at Radio City, and his bus was parked right mm-hmm. out in front of Radio City, in front of our offices. And I went out and hung out with him, and I, and I interviewed him, and I, but I kind of had the same impression. So I just kind of let it go. And then he called me about six months after that, and he said, well, what happened to your article? And I said, um, I said, well, you know, I really think I got to come visit you at home to do this article. And he balked at that, and he went back and forth and finally invited me to his home. He said, I don't want to do it. I don't want to let you in here. I don't want to talk about the past. I don't want to do any of that, but you can come out. As soon as once I got to his house, 
it, it just opened up, you know? I mean, he couldn't help himself. <laughs> he, he's so honest and, and dignified, and he, and, he, and he just has a lot to say. So we just, we just started there, and, and in three days, I mean, I got so much material. It was kind of unbelievable. Three. He was so open. His family was around, and um, it was really a great, you know, amazing experience. But what happened after that was he got sick, and so I was just finishing the story, and he got lung cancer, and he had to have part of his lung removed. And so that sort of changed everything. So then we had to go back out there and spend more time with him after he, you know, was sort of recovered from that. So in the it end, we ended up... became a very different story. became a very different story after that, and we, we ended up, you know, spending an awful lot of time together. How did he react when you asked him about prison and stuff like that? I mean, is he, he didn't want to talk about that, right? Yeah, I mean... I knew he didn't want to talk about it, so I talked for the first two days. We only talked about, you know, now and his family and his music and songwriting and all that stuff. And then I just sort of let him come to it on his own. A lot of it we did through music, you know, talking about Johnny Cash, talking mm-hmm. about Bob Wills. He loved talking about music. There was one day when I showed up at his house and in the morning they were having tea, and he was, he was listening to this Bob Wills record. And, I mean, this record, he must have heard this record a thousand times before. But it was like he was hearing it for the first time. I mean, he was just like almost giddy, mm. just singing along and pointing out things. And I just, you know, you realize how much all that stuff meant to him, that old music. And, Patrick, you you did the last uh, interview with him. Um, yeah, he was about to go back on the road um, after some, some canceled dates. And his publicist reached out and said he wants to, uh, he wants to do... I think Merle said this actually is I want to do one good interview and have everybody else copy it <laughs> um, because he didn't want to talk to all the, you know, local papers because it just was a lot of energy for him. But he was pretty, um, you know, weak, way much weaker than I had ever talked to, you know, he'd sounded when I talked to him before, but he was very funny. He was, he just gotten out of the hospital and he said that they, you know, they gave him steroid shot and he said, I was giving judo lessons to the nurse. <laughs> um, so, uh, he he was he was still funny and he was talking he was very excited because the the Willie record that he did because he he had a lot of records various labels not getting a lot of attention and and this Willie record was a number one country album and he was very proud of that was of Django the and Jimmy yeah Django right, and Jimmy which, and which came out last last year yeah, yeah and they so they were planning another one and he he said I ha- I'm, I'm he was at home he said I have my you know scrub bands <laughs> set up here which was. I mean, you got to see that him playing in his house, yeah. right? He would just play in his living room, was it? Or? Yeah, we, just a rinky-dink little, yeah. you know, room. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the the joke always was that the piano player, there was no room to put the keyboard, so he had it hidden behind the, the couch. And it was always like, Doug, you playing the old couch again? You know? <laughs> they were just, just jammed in there. And uh, I, I mean, I, I uh, enjoyed Django and Jimmy, too. We should point out that, that that's worth checking out for people. There's some really funny songs on there, the one about it's all going to pot. Yeah. <laughs> about and uh, with him and Willie. And then also the one about remembering Johnny Cash. Oh which yeah, is missing with, old Johnny yeah. Cash. Treated his fans like the next of kin, rapping the bit, talking trash, missing old Johnny Cash. Well now Johnny Cash And then I Am What I Am, which was a few years earlier, that that's I think one one of my favorite records of his because it, it's he's sort of um, you know love is always pretty when it's new and all this stuff that um, is 
the standards feel, but he was writing new standards. He was yeah. as of that quality. Yeah, in in those last years, he listened to a lot of Cole Porter. He loved Cole Porter, and you could tell he was sort of writing in that 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 standard style. Yeah, uh, Patrick, I remember you telling me that after Jason's story came out, you guys both went up to meet Merle. Yeah, uh, can you can you tell us that that story? Well, I, I had just started at the magazine, and I still I think I count it as my favorite experience because it wasn't it was a real moment. It wasn't you know going on assignment or anything. We we just took a, a trip on a Saturday to go and see Merle in Atlantic City. And uh, Jason's feature had, had come out actually about three years earlier. So they, I don't think you had spoken to Merle in that I time. I hadn't spoken, but I'd, I'd heard little rumblings that he was upset about some things in, in, in the story, and, and which, which upset was upsetting to me because I you know, spent a long time on it, and I, I couldn't see what he would be upset about. And But we went, we showed up at at the show and I had, I had been asking Merle's manager if it was okay if we were there and I, you know, I did, we, we could just watch the show and not talk to him because I didn't really know what, what he thought and we were, we went to to soundcheck. He invited us right into soundcheck was the first thing. He didn't know we were there. Merle didn't know we were there and Patrick and I were standing on the side of the stage watching soundcheck because I had done a whole lot of times before and as Merle finished up his soundcheck, he walked off and he was walking straight at us and I did not know what was going to go I could down. see the darkness over his hat and you didn't know where he was looking. It was coming at us, but you didn't know what he was looking at. And he just walked right up to us yeah. like like he was expecting us and was happy to see us and invited us right up to his room. And we spent about the next three hours in his room. We were just standing there and, and, and he, he said, hi. It was very, we were kind of quiet for a while. He said, so do you want to go up to my room? And, yeah. Did, did he tell? Did you ever find out if he was upset about anything? Well, or? I did actually. Later, I didn't ask him that day, but after that, I flew to Las Vegas just on my own to see him because I wanted to see him. He did a stand in Las Vegas, the Golden Nugget, uh, like six nights, the Golden Nugget every year, and I wanted to see that. So I went out there and and finally got the chance to ask him, you know, what was it that upset you? And he said, you know. I had written in the story that he keeps his marijuana in a M&M, in an M&M's canister, and he said, "You never tell a tell you know you never write where a man keeps his stash." <laughs> <laughs> and after all that, uh, that was what he had been upset about. He violated the code. <laughs> but but we were up in his room for about three hours. We were sitting there, and and, and uh, I remember he he was rolling. His joints, and I won't say where his stash was, <laughs> but but, it, but he had it on his lap on a, on a I think the room service you know book that they give you, and he was, yeah. he was breaking up his, his pot, and then there was a knock on the door, <laughs> and it, uh, and his eyes just lit up, and he was scared, and he, he uh, dumped it all into the trash. Oh um, yeah, well he you was th- I mean he had a lot of run-ins with you know with the cops in his early days, yeah. and he never he never moved past that. I mean, and there's a scene in your story right where he you're well, with him. Right? Every time I've been near him when there, he all you know like we we're in a diner and some cops walked in, he would just immediately like put his hands behind his back like I give up you know take take me away. I mean, he yeah. was just like yeah wow he was afraid of getting busted right yeah. I think remember that, and, you, and he was talking about building a, a little studio where he would have these kind of Levon Helm type midnight rambles and stuff. It was just a really exciting time in his in his career. He was yeah. really getting back out there, but he was. It was I, a great show too. Yeah, but it just felt like sitting with somebody like Bob Dylan. Just I've never felt uh, quite that sort of electricity coming out of somebody. Yeah, Merle had a uh, you know a gravitas, a thing about him, just a, a kind of monumental quality to him. Just that you knew that you were with a guy who 
does doesn't think like anyone else you've ever met thinks for himself is is a, a real you know larger than life figure uh, you know just a force I mean, uh, even uh, Dylan himself called him right in your yeah, Her- herculean yeah right? yeah his, his career and Dylan's I, I I learned this yesterday they they both basically hit in 65 and then Dylan sort of you know gave, you know gave a little bit of a jab at Merle in his music cares speech last year and and I think there was a little maybe a little competition because they were sort of on par with each other and not many other people like there that. is you know I think that's what drives these guys, right? A little yeah. bit of comedy. Hey, what's he doing? You know, yeah. can I, you know, can I, can I, can I do better than that? Yeah. Like, how do you do that? And Merle said, I, I asked him, Merle toured with, with Dylan in what year, 2004 or something? Uh, I saw it in 05, I yeah. remember, yeah. And I asked Merle, you know, do, do you know, because he and Dylan are pretty close. And I said, did, did you get a much of a chance to hang out before shows backstage and stuff? And Merle just said, Oh, don't disturb Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> but then also going back to that authenticity thing, I mean, like when Dylan arrived in New York, he made up all these stories about riding the rails and this whole life that he had led, all of which were untrue, which is part yeah. of Dylan's charm. But like Mer- Merle lived that life. Yeah. He lived the life that all these, you know, these other people were writing songs about, in- including Johnny Cash. And in a time where you could do that, where, you know, the country was wide open enough that you could ride the rails and that you could, you know, have a kind of freedom that, that, you know, it doesn't really exist anymore. You know, like we said earlier, he's a link to a, a different time and a different set of conditions when, you know, in this country that, you know, it's, that's why it's one of the other reasons it's such a huge loss. All right, guys. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up. If you guys could point people to like one great, you know, Merle Haggard record or a collection, where where would you tell people to start? I know this is a, this is a tough question because he, he does have one of those careers. Well, well I would say if you, the most essential record that he made is his tribute record to Bob Wills, mm-hmm. which was right on the heels of Okie from Muskogee at the most popular part of his career. And it, his move was to make a tribute record to an old hillbilly jazz icon. And you can... There's something about the electricity and passion of that record and the playing on it and him mixing his band and Bob Will's band with this just jumping kind of hillbilly jazz sound. I mean, it's Merle at his loosest and and happiest, I think. Yeah. It's 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 a really infectious record. Pat, Patrick, do you have one? Oh, there's so many. Play? And I would say, you know, like the Mama Tried record is probably a gateway in, into him that was, um, in, you know, 60, 69, and it was great. But um, I like the, after that production, you know, the, the 60 stuff, I don't know about the production some of the time. So, like, you know, even like Back to the Bar Rooms and stuff in the 70s is a little looser. Yeah. And, and um, you feel like he had a little less to Roots prove. Roots of My Raisin yeah. is a great yeah. one. And he would just write us, like, the song, that song Leonard, which I just like. It's a, a tribute to his friend Tommy Collins. So there's some little, little deeper cuts, I guess, but I really like the, that stuff. You All know? right, maybe we should post a Spotify playlist for uh, pod- podcast listeners or something. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot lot of ground to cover, but I think we covered some good ground today. He so. had 40 number one country singles. Pretty oh, incredible. Bananas. Jason Fine, Patrick Doyle, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. That was the great John Bonham of Led Zeppelin, who is the number one drummer on our 100 Greatest Drummers list, which is live now on RollingStone.com, and has earned quite a bit of feedback, as most of our lists do. I'm here with Chris Weingarten, contributing editor, Rolling Stone. Hey there. 
and John Dolan, Record Reviews Editor. Hey. And we're going to talk about our list and the feedback it's got. We're going to read some reader mail. But first, Chris, you were one of the people who spearheaded this list. You are a drummer. You've recorded albums. John, I know you're an amateur drummer or semi-professional. I would say amateur is a pretty apt description. Okay. <laughs> Can you talk about overall the thinking behind this list? Was it greatest rock drummers? Was it was it greatest technical drummers? What, what was the idea? We had to look into a lot of different things. We had to approach it from a lot of different angles. We couldn't just – if it was a list of just dudes who shredded and were just amazing – Chops dudes. It would just be like Neil Peart and it would, Stork, I mean, it would just Copeland be a bunch or, of like, you know, uh, clinic dudes that no one really cares about right. as far as as far as having created, uh, you know, memorable and timeless music. Right. However, a lot So with all due respect to like some, a place like uh, Modern Drummer, the goal was yeah, not to make a Modern the, Drummer exactly, list. Exactly. Right. Like, you know, like, I'm sorry to, to Dave Weckl and Mike Portnoy. You know, you, right. guys, are, you guys are beasts, but, you know, I, I can't – Say you've been on the driving end of of a record as timeless as Funky Drummer, right? Right. <laughs> you know, and uh, the, the people who taught this list were, were you know Bonham, Keith Moon. Uh, I think maybe Neil Pert was number three. Neil Pert was number four. B- Neil, no, Neil Pert was number four, and number three was Ginger Baker was number three. Oh yeah, Ginger, Ginger Baker, Baker was, was number. Ginger three. Baker was so, number three. Neil was number so, four. But just the choice of like Bonham and Moon at number one and two. I mean, the, yeah. the, those two were not the greatest technical drummers, but they were just the beastly rock well, they, drummers. They are yeah. phenomenally technical I mean, drummers. Right. Like, I mean, they, they, well, I mean, you have to yeah. not not in the same way that Neil Pert is. Yeah, right. But before Keith Moon hit the scene, drumming was the backbeat of right. a band. And Keith Moon said, I'm going to be a solo player, just like everyone on this stage. Right. I'm going to go berserk and, uh, you know, let my presence be known. And that's a very rock and roll thing. And that defined uh, how the drummer fit into a rock band for the rest of time so far. Right. I mean, he had two floor toms, one to play and one to put his drinks on. I mean, he, you know, he turned <laughs> so the sticks the over package. and played, yeah. you know, the, he played, he held the small end and so he could get more heaviness out of it. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about John Bonham as number one and then we'll get to kind of the overall criteria and then we'll read some reader mail. So why Bonham at number one? Bonham's the whole package. He hits incredibly hard. His right foot is, is monstrously fast. Uh, he can play a, a groove that will be sampled by rappers and electronic producers over and over again and still play uh, a monster, one of the most famous drum solos of all time. Moby Dick. Moby Dick. He has everything. He's a total package. Right. You listen to like a, even a pop song like Fool in the Rain, like that is a sick beat. Um, right. The crunch. Know. Yeah, the crunch. I mean, the, all, you know, everything on actually, it's like House of the Holy is everything on there. But like, you know, the beat on Cashmere where it's just slow and yeah. he's behind it a little bit and he's just, it's it's like, the, he was, you're right, it's like good, the, the, the good, verse, enough, good enough for Schooly D to rap yeah, over. Yeah, right. Right. You know? Yeah. I think, you're, I mean, in terms of like the number of actual drum beats that even me as a, like a non-drummer can enjoy and be like, oh my God, that sounds incredible. John Bonham. Wins. When you're like, air drumming, you're 
you're that's what you're, you know it's like right. people when you're air drumming you're being John Bonham it's like right. that sense of kind of like the heaviness mixed with the versatility and the kind of soulfulness and the nuance like he played the snare drum in cool ways like you know what I mean like in the sense of accents and stuff like that it wasn't just boom 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 it was kind of all over it was it was it was nuance and detail mixed with just pure power can, can, I need I need to correct myself because I think the Schooly D song was actually replayed and not a sample but but, uh, but, but, but the right. Beastie Boys yeah yeah, yeah, yeah of course know, I mean that's one, how, one of the greatest drum samples but. On you know, on top of that, like his sound, everyone wanted his sound. You know, when the Melvins recorded records and didn't like the way the snare sound, they sampled in John Bonham's snare sound. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, on Lysol. Yeah, you know? I mean, like the, you know, that a lot of that is Jimmy Page too. Like you know, like miking the room and understanding if we can get the sense of how to sort of create space to make, to, so we can really hear the snare song. Well, he famous, he played um, When the Levy Breaks, the, the Beastie Boys sample in Rhyme and Stealing in a Stairway or yeah. a Bath, I think it was a, a Stairway yeah. or a Bath, I think it was a Stairway, yeah, it got that incredible echo, yeah. Um, and that's sort of helped kind of create the overall, to be a part of the overall Zeppelin sound, and you're right, like, the way those drums sound sort of also sort of moves drumming into the future by a lot. I mean, like, there's... Well, the entire the entire grunge movement yeah. is sort of based on different variations of what he did. Yeah, right. I mean, Dave Grohl okay. is you know exactly. It's like those guys are just they're living in his, in his shadow. Everybody yeah. would admit. Okay. Everyone well, they grew, they grew up on it. You know, yeah. they grew up on it, and this this is what someone like Dave Grohl or Matt Cameron like to them like this is what drumming is. Right. And he just he just defined it. Right. All right. Well, we've talked a little bit about one and two. People with a big list like this, they look at the kind of they look for inconsistencies, or they look for things that are, that are surprising. With this one, there are definitely there are some jazz players are on it, some aren't. Can you talk a little bit about the overall criteria in terms of like including people, kind of sure. non-rock people? Well, with jazz uh, musicians, I really wanted it to be jazz musicians who had a distinct influence on generations of rock musicians right. because you know rock music is our wheelhouse and if if we opened it up the floodgates to you know to all jazz then you know these dudes would dominate and you know it wouldn't exactly be uh because uh, all the, so many of them are such great yeah, technical were, drummers yeah, just amazing. Right. Yeah, right. yeah yeah so that's you why know, like max, say like max roach isn't on the list but you know, Buddy Rich is on the list. Right. You know, and Elvin like, Jones is on the list. Right? Elvin yeah, Jones, yeah. Uh, Jack DeJanet, like yeah. you know these these dudes who uh, played on records like Love Supreme and Bitches right. Brew, uh, who which rock musicians have enveloped into their own right. playing style. Either they played on actual rock records or rock or records that rock musicians were listening to. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, you know, and Buddy Rich is an interesting. Uh, Interesting character because we we sort of think he invented the idea of a rock and roll drummer in a way. You know, he's he's showy and flashy and hot tempered and has apocryphal stories about him and uh, and he's Buddy Rich when he flies off the handle and it's uh, it's sort of a precursor to. What we know is as Keith Moon, and what right. we know is as John Bonham. He was Keith Moon before Keith. Exactly, Moon. exactly. Right. He he kind of was the blueprint for a lot of that, even though he he did pedal in jazz and swing. Right. 
I mean, All right, another, well, let's actually before we could talk about this forever, but let's talk a little bit about the readers, the things that the readers were most cheesed about. Or uh, we got a lot of uh, reader comments about why Meg White was included. Well, I'll read a couple. Uh, Mary Runaround. This is the username of the commenter. I enjoy lots of White Stripes music, but come on, there must be about eighty-nine thousand drummers better than Meg White. Here's one from a uh, username Batika. Meg White, really? Meg White? Somebody named <laughs> Blart. I stopped reading at Meg White. Okay. Well, that's like, she was pretty low. So actually, the, yeah, the, the Blart read most, yeah. most Blart. of the list. Thank you, Blart. I hope you liked it. Um, yeah. Okay. So this was a, a slightly controversial in the sense of Meg White. Most people would agree she's not a great technical drummer. Why Meg White? What Chris? Meg White did was have a very unique, simple sound that underground music has been doing for years and you know bands like beat happening and half japanese and she brought it to an arena context yeah she said that this way of a little bit stilted a little bit leaden not a whole lot of flash a staple of of lofts and uh, punk houses and tiny clubs for decades. And she took it to Madison Square Garden. And that's huge. That's an amazing, amazing feat. And I would say just even because of the formation of the White Stripes, the form of the White Stripes is a two-person group. I mean, yeah. it brought her – she was unavoidable. She was such like a presence and I would say influential. Absolutely. I mean, you hear – you could you could isolate her drum tracks. You would know exactly who it was. It's it, There's no mistaking. You know, it's, 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 it's her style. And to, to have a style that unique as one of the biggest rock bands – of the new millennium, that's huge. Like I couldn't like if you isolated Coldplay's drummer, who I can't even name Coldplay's drummer. If you isolated him, I wouldn't be able to to tell it from you know what another guy is doing. It's, this is a completely different story. She kind of combines you're right the minimalism of Maureen Tucker with the heaviness of Dave Grohl, kind of. And there's kind of like a like you know she the way she plays the ride symbol, this heavy kind of behind it, behind it. She never really plays. It's not really quarter notes. It's it's always kind of these half notes. And she just has kind of you're right. It's 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 a style that is really hard to do. It's hard to be that restrained and that heavy. You know, especially when she probably has. I think it's interesting when a drummer might have a little more talent than she lets on. She might be a little bit of a better drummer than the music needs her to be, and she's totally cool with that. I mean, she's kind of just on it in a very minimal way, which is a really difficult thing to be. So when you're measuring it in terms of how important a drummer is in terms of, like, how the drums fit into the music, but also in terms of, like, their influence, well, one you, of the that's things, how Meg White Yeah, one of the things we it. talked about doing this is, is kind of... Um, how does the drummer fit the song? We wanted to really have drummers that fit the song, that meet, that work in the music, that a actually help you like songs more rather than, as Chris was saying, these kind of technical gods. And those guys are on here. There's a ton of those guys. But, you know, it's like a drummer like Jim Keltner is a studio sort of legend who, like, you know, people have been, people will listen to his songs on the radio for years and years and years and never even know his name. But he's part of some of your favorite songs. Right. And there's lots of examples of that. And we right. have guys like Bill Berry. They're not technically sort of like, you know, masters. I think Bill Berry one time said, I'm not the modern drummer drummer. But, like, like they're the way they were able to play in their bands for years and years and, and be musical and be interesting sort of, you know, made us feel like we, they merited inclusion on the list. Yeah, like right. Hal Blaine is a great yeah, example exactly. of, you know, 
he's on these Phil Spector songs that were the, the you know, the pulse of America. You know, we based how we moved and listened to music on his drum his beat. Be my baby drum. On the, you yeah, know, yeah, the yeah, be my baby yeah. beat. Like, you know, people are still playing that. You know, right. it's 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 huge. And that's that's way more huge than Chris Penny from Dillinger Escape Plan doing a completely wicked bass drum roll. Right. <laughs> you know? yeah, which kind right. of brings you to Ringo. I mean, Ringo's right. kind of the quintessential well, yeah, that, guy. That, like- that's the other uh, reader mail issue that we're going to address. There was a lot of mail about people upset that we put uh, Buddy Rich, the great jazz drummer, under Ringo Starr on the list. Uh, here's something from a reader named Peter Saunders. I love the Beatles. Who doesn't? But Ringo at number 14 and Buddy Rich at 15. Let's get real. Uh, this is something, somebody named Lost Sock, a user named Lost Sock. Ringo Starr over Buddy Rich, just insane. If it wasn't for John, Paul, and George, dot, 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 no one would have ever known Ringo's name in the first place. His son is a far better drummer. Well, Zach Starkey is a great drummer. Bill E., this is the reader named Bill E., did Rolling Stone just rank Ringo Starr above Buddy Rich? Nah, can't be. I must be dreaming. Do you want to take this one, Chris? Ringo. I have said in the past that (laughs) Beatles songs are about as omnipresent in the world as pizza. I can't leave the apartment and not hear a Beatles song in a restaurant or a bodega or a taxi cab. No matter where I am in the country, I will hear someone playing a Beatles song. It really is probably the most omnipresent music in the world that isn't happy birthday or Christmas music. That being said, the amount that we've heard Ringo Starr's drumming, you know, when Dana Carvey is going to play a drum solo as Church Lady on Saturday Night Live, he's not going to go to Moby Dick. He's going to go to the drum solo on Abbey Road. It's how entire generations learned how to play drums. And Buddy Rich is an amazingly, you know, his, his talent can't be understated, but he just hasn't affected the sheer number of human beings as, as Ringo Starr. You know, as, as the amazing pocket drummer, slightly funky, of the Beatles, hands down. I really should have just said, it's the Beatles, and walked out of the room. <laughs> like, <laughs> what do you want from here? D- John, do you he, want to talk about yeah, that? I mean, he, yeah, he, he would have been a great, without the Beatles, he would, could have been a great studio drummer. He was incredibly reliable, but he was also had a lot of feel. And those guys, all studio guys, all talk about how Ringo was their model for having kind of a certain kind of feel. There are moments in Beatles songs which you credit to... Great moments that are Ringo moments. Ticket to Ride is, is obviously a really great example. One of the first things you hear in one of the first great Beatles singles is the drum beat to She Loves You, that rolling tom-tom thing. I mean, just as there are Paul moments of musical brilliance and John moments, and there are Ringo moments as well that sort of highlight songs. I mean, he, you know, how the many, right. How many Chemical Brothers songs are based on Tomorrow Never Knows at this point?
point. Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> and that's it's funny you say the Hal Blaine thing. They're very similar beats, kind of, and like, and he kind of he worked himself into the music. And it also at a time when drummers like in the Keith Moon, Ginger Baker, Mitch Mitchell thing were getting much and much more showy and crazy. He kept his personality in check and helped the music and served the music and kind of made himself the model for serving the music. And also, you know, he introduced people to the notion of the drummer as a personality, a lovable guy, a guy who's part of the band, not by being wild and crazy, but by being sort of this lighthearted, good-natured guy who, when the rest of the Beatles were getting heavy and kind of serious, Ringo's always the comic relief, and it kind of fits the sort of good-natured, relaxed, and, and, and likable and amiable style of his drumming fits his personality. So he's kind of this total package of an endearing drummer. And, so and, aside and, from the like if Keith Moon was the first kind of bona fide like rock star drummer. Ringo was the first drummer with a personality. He's the first, he the first pop yeah. star drummer. He yeah. really was. Pop, yeah. And and he kind of introduces the idea of, of of a drummer who's got a big personality and a level personality, but, but still fits in the band like he's and, and there was a pressure. I mean, it's funny when you learn about when you fr- I don't know about you, but you know, when you first are starting to play drums, all you ever hear from people who think they know what they're talking about is Ringo's bad. Yeah. You always hear like, you know, well he was terrible. They were all these geniuses and there's always that stuff about oh Paul had to actually play the part sometimes, which isn't really true. But it, the more you learn about drumming, the more you like Ringo. He played, you know, he played left-handed Right, so he had to do these kind of funny fills. He, he called them funny fills, and he came up with these kind of strange kind of fills. How to do that? Which you can hear. Um, what's a good example of a funny fill? Like um, I don't know. Like um, well, the end obviously is the kind of the yeah. classic, the Hybe Road stuff where he's doing that. But he kind of switches over in a different kind of way. But the main thing is like as a bass drum snare drummer. I just think he's up there with the greats. I mean, like, it is one of the, maybe one of the greats of all time, just as someone who can just kind of stay in Maybe the like pocket. the 14th greatest of maybe all time. Maybe he's the 14th greatest. <laughs> maybe. I wouldn't put it exactly. Well, all right. With that, I, th- I think we might wrap things up. Chris Weingarten, John Dolan, thanks for coming. Thank you. It's what we do. And thanks for listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. If you like what you heard, please leave a review or subscribe at the iTunes Store. 